Good morning. Thank you to the young men for leading us this morning. That they do a great job. It's good to have them lead us in worship. So thank you for doing that. And good to sing together. You know how I feel about singing together. I love it. And it's wonderful to be together with you this morning. Well, today we come to Psalm 34. We take the summer months to preach through the book of Psalms, and today brings us to 34. This is the last psalm that I will be preaching this summer. Pastor Joey is going to take the next two weeks and preach so that I have some time to prepare for our next sermon series, which will be in the Gospel of Matthew. So September 10th, we start the Gospel of Matthew together, and I'm thankful that Joey can cover the pulpit for the next couple weeks so that I have time to read and research and pray and, and get ready for that series. So pray for both of us as I'm getting ready for that long book and trying to structure it in a way that's helpful for us and also for Joey as he'll be taking Psalm 35 and 36 over the next couple Sundays. One of the reasons, you know, sometimes people ask, well, how do you, <clears throat> how do you pick books or how do you know where we're going uh, in the preaching schedule? One of the reasons that I really wanted to go back to one of the Gospels is because as, as Christians, everything we believe, everything we hold dear, all the convictions that we have, find their origination in Christ. Now, whether that comes through his words directly, or through the apostles, or through David, as we're going to see today, everything we hold dear, all of our convictions come from Jesus Christ. And so... I wanted to take an extended time where we look at his life and his ministry so that we don't just skip over Jesus and get to Paul. We've got to get to Paul. He's so practical and applicable. Well, sure he is. That's because he's telling us what Jesus said. So I want to make sure that we are balanced as a church, that we don't just go to the obvious places. We want to know Christ and we want to know his life and his ministry and his passion for people and the hope that he gave. And so we're going to spend an extended time in the Gospel of Matthew. And I'm very excited for that. But for this morning, we are at Psalm 34. Now this psalm has some really unique characteristics. One of them being there is no structure of prayer here. You remember many of the psalms that we've looked at over the summer have been in the form of a prayer directly to God. There's none of that in this psalm. This is not a prayer of uh, thanksgiving. It's not a prayer of request like we've seen so many times. It is a declaration that the reader would be encouraged and strengthened and see examples of what God has done. So could you use this as a prayer? Of course, and we should. But it is a unique characteristic of Psalm 34 that there is no direct language to God in this psalm. This is for the reader to see and to learn and to hear. So let's open our Bibles together and turn to Psalm 34, and you can follow along. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, we have Bibles available in the back. Don't leave without one today. If you need a Bible, please grab one on your way out. They're on the welcome table as you leave. So Psalm 34, would you follow along as I read, starting in verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. 
This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ear towards their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Let's pray. Father, our hearts come now before you, and we are thirsty. We've been through various experiences this week, Lord. You have led us some through fire, and some through water, and some through valley, and some through mountaintop. And all of these experiences culminate now as we come together this morning, and each one of us needs to hear from you in your word. We need instruction, we need encouragement. We need correction. We need our, our hearts and our motives to be aligned with you and your word. And Father, this is not something we can do on our own. We cannot remove our hard heart and put in a heart of flesh, but you can do that. You've promised to do that by your spirit. And so God, this morning, for those of us who may have a little bit of crust forming around our hearts, tempting us to harden or to disbelieve or to doubt. Lord, remove that. By your spirit and through your word, give us soft hearts that these words would land on us, not as Jacob's words or David's words, but as your words. And so would you change us through the preaching of your word? And I ask for grace in the preaching and grace in the hearing. And in everything that is said and done here today, Lord, may you be glorified and would you be magnified. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to work through this psalm in four sections. It's a longer psalm with 22 verses, so we will not be able to do, get every nuanced thing in this psalm, but I've broken it up into four sections and I'll let you know what those are as we go through here. But even before we get in, I want to draw attention to something here in the text. So look at your Bible again, and I want you to notice something called the superscription. Big word. All it means is, you see the, the words that are above verse 1? So before the verse numbers start, you should have what's called a superscription. So read that with me. What does that say? Of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. 
Now, a superscription is not something that was added, you know, hundreds and thousands of years later. It was part of the manuscripts. And what the superscription does for us oftentimes is it lets us know what occasioned the psalm. Why was the psalmist writing this way? What experience did they have? Or it can communicate a purpose of the psalm. Was it to be used in personal worship or in prayer or in corporate worship? So oftentimes you'll read uh, a psalm of David, a, a maxil of David, or, or some kind of little thing up there above the text. That's called a superscription. And the reason that I draw attention to it today is because in this case, David is recounting a time when God delivered him from Saul and from a Philistine king. And as he's recounting these things, what overflows out of his heart in the remembrance of God's activity is this psalm. The blessing of God, the encouragement for those to worship God, and then he's going to walk through and give us the whole range of emotion and expression that he experienced during this time. Okay, so we're going to start in verses 1 through 3 with this, this praise to God because of what he's done in, in delivering him and answering his prayer. Then we're going to move on in 4 to 7, and we're going to see testimony where David expresses what God has done. Not so much a command for us, but just a, a testimony of how God has worked on his behalf. Then as we move on, we're going to hear instruction, that David is instructing his readers, here's what you ought to do. And this comes in various forms, and then we close with the promises of God. All of these things are coming from David's experience, which we read about here in the superscription. So as you are reading through the Psalms, pay attention to those things. Sometimes, I'm not going to say it's insignificant because it is the word of God, but sometimes it doesn't shape how we read it a whole lot. Sometimes it's very helpful in connecting the Psalm to other places in history and we can gain a little bit of understanding. So let's start with our first section here, verses one through three, and deal with praise and the praise that David is giving to God. Now, we might be tempted to sort of gloss over this section because what are some of the things we're seeing here? Bless the Lord, praise him continually, my soul makes its boast. This is very typical psalm language, right? We have seen this multiple times already in these past 34 chapters of the psalms where the instruction for God's people to praise him is there. So we might be tempted to just kind of, yep, praise God, we've seen this before, let's move on. But I want to draw attention to two words in particular that I think really shape the way we should read this. And the two words would be found in verse 1, the word all and the word continually. You see those both in verse 1? I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth, or it will never cease to be in my mouth. Now, here's why this is so important. It is really easy, or it can be easier for us, to praise God when there is nothing happening bad in our lives. It can be really easy to, to bless the Lord when everything's going great. There's no conflict in your family. The bank account is, is fine. There's, there's no turmoil in your life. And in those times, it can be really easy to say, oh, I'm so thankful for the goodness of God and we bless his name and there's no ripples in the water, so to speak. The challenge for God's people is blessing him, praising him, worshiping him in all circumstances, continually. When things are not going well, 
the challenge is to praise him. And so that's what David is getting at. And here is where the superscription is really helpful, right? These words, this blessing of God, this worship, is not coming from a time of peace from David. He is on the run. <laughs> Literally, he is in physical danger. Saul is chasing him. Saul's the king of Israel, but David has been anointed the next king, and there's this massive tension between them. And so Saul often takes hundreds, even thousands of men, and he's chasing David all around the countryside. David has felt the tip of the sword. He's heard the arrows whizzing by his head that are intended for him. This is not metaphorical language. David is not looking back on his experience. Okay, what can I make up? What kind of illustration can I use to help people understand they should praise God all the time? He's not making something up. This is a very tangible, literal experience for David. So when we read his words, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. There carries with that a weight because of the experience that he has and because of what is prompting him to write these things. As the people of God, it is both our duty and our delight to praise God at every turn. And I just admit, it is very easy to do this when things are good. What we need is encouragement to praise God in all circumstances. Now, we should praise him when things are going well. We should be very thankful. I am not saying that we should only praise God when life is hard because somehow that's better. But let me tell you, whether it is arrows or an Airbnb, whatever you are experiencing, sword or stake, praise the Lord. Bless his name. And the end of verse 3 tells us that this should be done together. You see verse 3? Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. This is something amazing. Because when we come together as the people of God, what happens is that we encourage one another to praise him, to bless his name. Yes, life might be really hard right now. You might be in a very dark place. But let me tell you something. Take your focus off yourself and magnify the Lord with me. And this is how he is glorified and how we are helped. Now, I want to point out one other thing before we move on. Notice this strange combination of words, at least I think it's kind of strange, in verse 2. As we read both about boasting and humility. Do you see that? You see that in verse 2? My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Now, what's the connection going on? Because normally when we hear about boasting, it is it is the opposite of humility, right? The one who boasts does so because he doesn't have humility. And all throughout the Bible, we see kind of this exchange between the two. So why is this connection being made here? Well, here, boasting is said to make the humble glad. How does that work? These are opposite things in one sense. How is it that boasting can make the humble glad? Do you know what boasting is? I think we all know what this is making a big deal about something, taking credit for something, exalting in something. We, we know what this is. I don't think we need to talk about this too much. Now, here's the difference. It all comes down to the object of your boast. It all comes down to the object of what you are making a big deal of, which is why David says, make your boast in the Lord. 
He's not saying, hey, humble people, you want to be more humble? Start boasting in anything. It doesn't matter. He is saying, make your boast in the Lord. Make a big deal of God and what he has done and how he has revealed himself to you. Turn that towards him and your soul will be glad. Let the humble hear and be glad. So what is it about boasting in the Lord that makes the humble glad? Now, here's the unique thing about Christian humility. There are people who are not Christians who are humble. Maybe not for the right reasons, but there are people who would prefer not to have the spotlight on them. They want to redirect things. But Christian humility is unique in the sense that we are not simply saying, no, I don't want to take credit for it. That's half of it. The other half is turning that boast, turning that attention towards who it ultimately belongs to, which is God, right? So in Christian humility, we say, I don't want the credit, I don't want the praise, I don't want the recognition, but it goes to God. And in doing so, the humility of your heart is pleased, it is happy. You are joyful in that humility because the right thing is happening. God is receiving the credit that he is due for everything. Make your boast in the Lord. Do it. Christians are not anti-boasting. But it makes a massive difference what and who you are boasting in. So let me just give a really quick point of application. How does this happen? If, if you are to take these verses with you and say, okay, how can I make my boast in the Lord? What does that mean that I just kind of go around saying things at random times and I boast in the Lord? And it's like, great, what are you doing? You know, how does this work itself out in our life? Let's give you one example. You, you, you press this into the corners, but let me just give one thing. Let's say you help somebody do something. You use a gift that God has given you. Maybe you're good at mechanical things, and you help someone fix the brakes in their vehicle, or you help replace an appliance, or, or you're just there for someone. You bring a meal over. You pray with them. You encourage them. When they say, oh, thank you so much for helping me, that is an opportunity to boast in the Lord. And here's what I mean. When someone says, thank you so much, what should you say? Oh, yeah, really wasn't that big of a deal. I've been working on that a long time, and I'm just glad I had the skill to help you. That puts the focus on you, right? Rather, as Christians who are to make our boast in the Lord with humility, we ought to say, you're welcome, praise God, He's gifted me to be able to do this, and I am so happy that he could use me to help you. There is just subtle ways that we can turn things and point them back to God. So make your boast in the Lord. Do it. Direct the thanks back to him. And you see the implication here that we should be using the gifts that God gives us? It creates opportunities for us to make our boast in the Lord. So if God has gifted you, use those gifts and when someone says, oh, thank you so much, I was really struggling with that, thank you, you say, praise God, isn't he good? <laughs> I just want to encourage us, just make this a habit in your life, make your boast in the Lord. Now our next section, verses four through seven, David gives testimony, he gives testimony to what God has done. And the main thing I think that he's getting at in this whole section can be seen in verses 4 and verse 6. So look at your text with me. Verse 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me. Verse 6, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him. 
So what is David telling us about God? What is he giving testimony to in this section? The fact that God hears and answers prayer. Again, remember the context. Remember the superscription that we just read. This, this hearing and answering prayer for David is very literal. God literally rescued him from death by saving him from the king of Gath and from Saul. God rescued him. He delivered him, which is precisely why he offers God the praise that he does in verses 1 to 3. But that was last week's sermon, and I'm not going to preach it again. The testimony that David is giving here is that God is faithful to answer the prayers, to hear the cry of his children. Now, when David says, this is verse 6, this poor man cried, what does he mean, this poor man? What's he getting at? Is he talking about a time when he was out of money? Is this a financial statement? Or maybe he's having a pity party. Anyone ever throw one of those? Everyone's invited. No? Okay. That's not what's going on. David's not saying, oh, poor old me. I had nothing else to do and nowhere to go, so I'll call on the Lord. That is not what he's saying. So what is he saying? This poor man cried and the Lord heard him. I think that he is using the word poor in the same sense that Jesus used it in the Beatitudes. Do you remember Matthew 5, 3? Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean? Does he mean that admittance into the kingdom requires you to be in poverty? Blessed are the poor in spirit. No, that's not what he means. He is referring to the state of one's heart, what condition the heart must be in in order to enter the kingdom, which is not a state of pride and haughtiness and self-reliance, but one who understands that we do not have what it takes to enter the kingdom on our own. We need help from someone outside of us. Jesus is saying that the poor man understands his help cannot come from himself, but in order to enter the kingdom, he needs something to happen that comes from outside, that comes from a heavenly father. The Psalms pick up on this language as well. Remember Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. Likewise, David is telling us here, he is describing the heart of the one whom God will hear. Does that make sense? So when he says this poor man cries to the Lord and the Lord heard him, one qualifies the other. In other words, have you, have you ever been praying for something and it just doesn't get answered? It doesn't get answered. You just feel like it's not going anywhere. You must examine your motives in prayer. If you are coming to God presumptuous, that is, expecting that God is somehow obligated to do what you're asking him to do, that you're kind, of, you're kind of getting him into the corner where he has to do what you say, that is not a prayer that God will answer. God hears the humble in heart, the contrite in spirit, the one who is poor in spirit. So what David is saying is exactly what Jesus is going to say some thousand years later. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those are the, those are the ones that God hears. So David's approaching God with an attitude of humility, not of pride, not of presumptuousness, but of true, humble heart before the Lord. So as you pray, consider this. If you aren't 
finding an answer to your prayer if you believe God to be silent, which he never is, but we just, sometimes that's how it feels. Consider your motives. Are you humble in heart? Are you poor in spirit? That's the kind of heart that God delights to answer. Now, David is going on in this section, and in verse 7, he introduces something that this is the first time we've seen this ever in the book of Psalms, namely the angel of the Lord. Okay, you see that in verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those, okay? So this is the one of only three times in the entire book of Psalms that we see the angel of the Lord. It's here in 34, and it is twice in 35. Now just a brief surface-level study of biblical theology tells us that the majority of the time, definite article, the angel of the Lord shows up in the Old Testament. It is not some random messenger angel. It is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, the one that we now know as Jesus Christ. That's who it is. And so, what is he doing when he comes? The one who is Jesus. Now that's Jesus, that's his given name, so right now we don't call him that because he hasn't been incarnate and come in the flesh, right? But it is the Son of God. And what is he doing? Look at verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. So what's he doing? What's the action being done here by the angel of the Lord? He is protecting and saving the people of God. That's what the encampment language is. It's the same as earlier in the Psalms. We saw that David's enemies surround him. Same, same word, same language. But now it's not the enemies. It is God, the Son, who is encamped, surrounding, protecting the people of God. And what else does he do? He saves his people. Now, protection and salvation, this is exactly what Jesus will do when he comes a thousand years later, incarnate. And he is born of the Virgin Mary. He lives his life. He dies on the cross. He was raised again by the glory of the Father and ascends to the right hand of God. What is he doing when he does all that? He is protecting and saving his people. He is protecting us from the power and the penalty of sin by freeing us from that. And he is offering salvation through his blood. When Jesus comes and is born a man, he is not doing anything new. He's doing it in a new way. But this is not something new, and we should read these texts in the Old Testament and get a picture, get a foreshadowing of what Christ will do when he comes. This is nothing new. Christ has been active in the history of redemption from the beginning, even before the beginning, as he makes a covenant of grace with the Father to save all those who would trust in him by faith. It would be a mistake for us to think that Jesus Christ the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, is just sitting idly by in heaven for 4,000 years until he comes as a man. He is active. He is working. And he is doing the same work that he always does of protecting and saving his people. Now, why is it so important to draw attention to this? This is a big deal. Don't, don't gloss over these little pointers that we get in the Old Testament. But let me just tell you why I am so hmm, excited about this. Here's the reason. 
When we get to the New Testament and we start talking Jesus language and his work and his, his life and his ministry and his salvation and the redemption, the atonement, all these things, it is very right and good for us to say we want to glorify Jesus for this work. We want to praise him for this work. Think of all the doxology type language in the New Testament. Now to him who is able to keep us from falling and present us blameless before the throne of his presence with glory and with great joy. To him be honor and dominion and glory and power forever. Why? Why would we just start that at the incarnation and move forward? Why not give him glory and praise for what he has done? It's all about glory. It is all about giving credit to Christ for what he has done. You talk about making your boast in the Lord. If you read the Old Testament blind to the fact that Jesus is there, you're missing an opportunity to glorify God for his work through Christ. This is one of my big passions for us as a church, that we understand the work of Jesus all throughout redemptive history. He is never idle. He is never not doing something. He's always active. Always. And his activity then should produce in us praise, worship, joy, adoration, whether it is in judges or Colossians. You tracking with me? So when we see these angel of the Lord references and we see people like Moses and Joshua and Noah prefigure Christ, that is doing things that Christ will also do, pay attention He's there, and he's active, and he is worthy of our worship in the Old Testament, just as he is worthy in the New. Now, in verses 8 through 17, we're keeping going in Psalm 34, David now offers instruction for his readers. We saw the praise, we heard the testimony, now he's giving instruction for his readers. And as he does this, he uses both command language, do this, taste and see, fear the Lord, And he also uses something I might call like example language. So if you want to live this kind of way, if this is the outcome, then you should do these things. So let's look at both of these things. Verses 8 through 10 are command language. And what is David commanding us to do? He is commanding us to enjoy God. Yes, I said commanding us to enjoy God. Now, enjoyment is not usually something we need to be commanded to do. All of us do things that we enjoy without being, you know, constrained to do it. Nobody's twisting your arm to go to Dairy Queen and have a dilly bar because we like that, right? We want to go there. We enjoy that. Nobody's going, oh, go to Dairy Queen. No, we do that because we want to. And for those of you who are lactose intolerant, I'm really sorry, and we'll pray for you. That's the best illustration I can come up with. Okay, so we know what it is to want something, to enjoy something. And David is saying... You need to enjoy and want the goodness of God. That's the language he's using here. Taste and see. Take it in. What happens when you taste something? You experience it in a totally new way. You can smell. You can feel. You can see. You can hear. But when you taste, it's different. It is a different kind of experience. And that's what David is getting at here Taste and see, take it in, swish it around your mouth, swallow it, enjoy it, get God in and experience his goodness. We need this reminder 
Because we take our desires, we take our enjoyments, and they are perverted by sin. And we need to be reminded that ultimate satisfaction, I'm talking top tier satisfaction, does not come through any other means than enjoying the goodness of God. And the language here almost seems to be like a challenge. Did you notice that? It's almost like a dare, as David's saying, go ahead. (laughs) You don't believe me? Taste. Taste it and see. You'll figure it out. If someone were to come up to David and say, how can I do, how can I do, how do I know God is good? How do I, how do I know the goodness of God? He'd say, eat up and I'll tell you. That's what he's getting at. Take it in. Try it. Experience it in a different way. Taste the goodness of God. This is just such awesome language, isn't it? Because it makes us uncomfortable. (laughs) Nobody knows what it means to eat God, in a sense, taste, taste it. What does that mean? What is he getting at? And I would just refer you over to Psalm 63. In Psalm 63, this is also David writing, and he uses language of satisfaction in God. Let me just read you a couple of verses. I think this is helpful as we figure out what he's commanding us to do. Psalm 63, verse 3. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied, there's that word, as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Do you remember last week? We made a big deal about the word of God and the works of God being the things that produce worship and praise in us. That's what's going on here. David is telling us that when we consider the steadfast love of the Lord, when we meditate upon his goodness, we will have tasted and seen that the Lord is good as we observe his word and his works. There is satisfaction to be had in God. All other pursuits to be satisfied are going to eventually leave you hollow. It might be good for a time but it will not be lasting. And all of us want to be satisfied, don't we? I do. I don't want to walk around with a big longing, a big emptiness in my heart. I want to be satisfied. But let me tell you, satisfaction will not come by pursuing your relationships, your vocation, by trying to fill that void with hobbies or sex or entertainment or whatever the case may be, all of those will eventually leave you hollow. And David is telling us in Psalm 34, the only thing, the only thing that will leave you satisfied is experiencing the goodness of God. That's it. And you know what the good news is? We don't have to look very far. The goodness of God is evident all around us. It's everywhere. So taste. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Now this next section, as we keep moving through the text here, he is going to give us now some examples. So 13 through 16 is saying, if you want to live this way, if you want to have this happen, then do these things. Okay? And this is all really standard psalm language. Don't use your words for evil. Speak truthfully. Do not turn aside to engage with the wicked and what they're doing. Rather, stay on the way of the righteous. We've heard all of this before. And 
verses 15 through 16 then tell us that the Lord sees everything, whether it's the actions of the righteous or the deeds of the wicked. And, and it, David uses this Hebrew idiom language of, of turning the face. The face of the Lord is turned towards or is turned against. And we'll get into that here in a second. But the interesting thing here is not so much what David says, but the fact that Peter quotes this almost verbatim in 1 Peter 3 as he's making an argument for Christian living, for conduct, for purity. And I say almost verbatim because he adds one word that gives us a little bit of help, I think, in understanding what David's getting at. So would you just turn to 1 Peter chapter 3? I want to show this to you. 1 Peter chapter 3, and you can see what I'm talking about. So in verse 8, Peter starts admonishing these Christians. He starts instructing them on how they should live together. So 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For, and here he quotes Psalm 34. The same text that we're seeing here in the middle of the chapter. But what he does, if you look down at verse 12 of 1 Peter 3, he adds a grounding clause between those sections. He adds the word for. Now you might think, good grief, why does that matter? It's really insignificant. It's a three-letter word. Why does it matter? Let me tell you why it matters. Because it transforms our obedience to what God has said. And it adds a layer of accountability to what he is saying, okay? By doing this, here's what I mean. If we go back to Psalm 34, you can turn back to Psalm 34 now. If we go back to Psalm 34 and we read what is in verses 12 to 14, if we disconnect those from what we see in 15 to 16, what do we have? If there's no connection there, it just sort of reads more like a proverb, right? You know what the proverbs are like. It's, it's, it's short, kind of pithy statements. If you want to do this, then do this. If you're going to be this, then be this. Kind of almost disconnected, boom, 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 boom. Okay, but when we add what Peter adds, here's how it changes. So let, let's put the word in. And here you can see that verse 12 in 1 Peter 3 is parallel to verse 15 in Psalm 34. So I'm going to read, starting in verse 14, but I'm going to add what Peter adds, and I'm going to explain why this is important. Okay, so follow along. Verse 14 of Psalm 34. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it, because, for, that's the word, for the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears towards their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. So how does that change? Well, rather than just being one instruction, another instruction, another instruction, that gives us the reason why we ought to do what it says in verses 12 to 14. The accountability comes in the fact that God is watching and he will not only reward our obedience but he will discipline or punish disobedience. That's what's going on with the face of the Lord being turned towards or against. If the face of the Lord is towards you, that represents his disposition towards you, meaning he is pleased with what you are doing. If the face of the Lord is against you, 
then that means you are not pleasing to him. You are not doing what he's doing. So I don't want to make too big of a deal of this, but it is important that we understand the right motivation for obedience. Yes, we obey because we love God and we want to be obedient to him. But we also need to remember that he is watching. He is aware of what we're doing. And if you want to see long life, if you want to experience the goodness of God, this isn't a a transactional thing, like if you do this, then you're guaranteed to live 90 years or whatever. But the point is that God is seeing what you're doing, and he will reward obedience. And I think that's a good motivation. Not as a way to earn favor with God, but as a way to understand that we want to be pleasing to our Heavenly Father. We want to walk in obedience to Him. And the Psalm and Peter are telling us, walk this way, live your life this way because God is watching and we want His face turned towards us in pleasure. So it's important to connect these texts and see how the New Testament interprets the Old So the last section, we're going to move on now, verses 17 through 22, give us the promises. And this section could have been a sermon on its own, and I almost did it, but I didn't. So I'm going to focus on verse 18. Verse 18 says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Now I can't tell you how many times that this verse has been a tremendous help to me, and to a lot of people that I interact with and talk to, have you ever had your heart broken? The Bee Gees wrote a song in 1970 called How Can You Mend a Broken Heart? It's not what this is talking about. This is not talking about getting dumped by your boyfriend, okay? Our hearts break for many different reasons. Sometimes we experience a broken heart because we've lost something. Sometimes we experience a broken heart because of our own sin or maybe an expectation that was unmet or just the reality of life sets in and it kind of crushes you. But it's not only the negative things. Our hearts can break for good reasons. When we think about the millions of people, both near and far from us, that have not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, And unless they hear it, they will perish eternally. That should break our heart. There's many different ways to experience a broken heart. And what this text is telling us is that God is near to those who have a broken heart. Isn't that something? Do you remember what Josh just read from Isaiah 40 this morning? The God who spoke things into existence, who demonstrated unbelievable power in the creation of the world who holds the waters in the hollow of his hand who created you that God the powerful omnipotent God stoops down why why would God come down and comfort you in your brokenheartedness oh He loves you. (laughs) This is one of the clearest demonstrations of the love of God. That for all of our messiness and all of the situations we get ourselves into and 
all of the mess of our life, God comes down. And he's near. He is near to the brokenhearted. The text tells us also that he saves the crushed in spirit. And maybe that's more where you're at now. I mean, you just, you don't have joy. <laughs> Your spirit is being, is being squeezed out of you. And you just don't have that satisfaction in God. You don't have the joy of the Lord. You just feel heavy and weighted. God's there for you. He'll save you. If you are experiencing that, that crushing, walls coming in kind of sensation, God is here to save you. And I don't mean save only in the term of soteriology, of, of rescuing you from your sin and redeeming you. He does that. But this is talking about comfort. This is talking about perseverance. This is talking about God being right next to you in the middle of your brokenheartedness. You're being crushed in spirit. None of those things prevent God from ministering. I think sometimes we get in the habit of thinking that we need to sort of clean everything up before God will come and work. I can't approach him like this. I'm a mess. I can't go before almighty holy God in this condition. Yes, you can. And yes, you should. He is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. That's what he does. And don't you just love the realism of this psalm? It, it starts out in the beginning with this, with this epic worship, this high octane, magnify the Lord with me and exalt his name. And then it moves through the whole spectrum of David's experience of giving testimony to the Lord and telling us what we ought to do to walk in obedience. And then it ends, maybe in a way we wouldn't think it would end, with these promises that regardless of the situation of our life, the Lord is near to us. He is near to the brokenhearted. Yes, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Now that deliverance might be temporary and it might be ultimate. Meaning, God does not always rescue his people in the ways that we think he should. Sometimes he takes them home and sometimes he sends them home from the hospital. But either way, he is near and he is good. And he loves us. So let me close by just explaining how this works. We can read this, you know, verse 18 and say, well, good, yeah, God's near to the brokenhearted. How does that work? Does that mean he's going to manifest himself next to me? Or, or what's going on here? Well, I'm going to make the argument that God is near to us. You've heard me say this before. Through his word, through his spirit, and through his people. And the more I go through, the more convinced I am that those are the main three ways that God works. Word, spirit, people. Let me tell you how that works. As we read the word of God, we read demonstrations of his love for us. Right? We read things like Romans 5 that say, but God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We read things like Romans 8, 34, that says, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? In other words, God has solved the greatest problem we have by removing our sin from us through the sacrifice of Jesus. How is he not going to do the lesser thing of being near to you in your time of trouble? 
So we read the word of God and we read texts like Psalm 34 and 2 Corinthians 1 and we read about the comfort that is available through God to his people. And then the spirit, the spirit works through the word and impresses those truths upon our hearts and comforts us as we read the word and interact with the word and then the people of God. You might have no idea how significant it could be that you put your arm around somebody and just say, I'm praying for you. You know how far that can go? You show up with some help, you you do whatever. But the people of God are the instrument of God's workings oftentimes. Right? I mentioned this earlier with with the boasting thing. When we use the gifts that God has given to us, it's not just an opportunity for us to do something or to keep busy. It's an opportunity to be used by God to bring comfort to someone to bring hope to someone. So I want to encourage you. If, if God works this way through his word, through his spirit, and through his people, you need to intentionally cause your life to intersect with the word, the spirit, and the people of God. Now I know the word intersectionality has some bad connotations these days, but I'm telling you, this is a good way to think about it. Cause your life to cross paths with the word of God. Cause your life to be influenced and saturated with the spirit of God and make sure you are interacting with God's people. This is how he works. This is how he comforts. This is how he draws near to his people. So whatever end of the psalm you are on this morning, whether you are praising God for the demonstrations of his goodness in your life or whether you are crushed in spirit to the point where you don't know how you're going to get up out of the pew. God will work through his word, through his spirit, and through his people to meet you where you are because he loves you. Let's pray. What a wonderful reminder, Father. And I just praise you that you are not distant. You are not disconnected. You are not cold towards your children, but rather you, you invite us to come and soak in your word, to, to be with your people and to experience the power of your spirit through your word. So God, for every heart here this morning, and I know it's just a, a wide variety of experience that's represented here, but no matter where we are, whether in joy or in pain, whether in fear or in excitement. God, would you meet us? And through your word and through your spirit and through your people, would you minister to our hearts so that we can say with the psalmist, I will bless the Lord at all times and his praise will continually be in my mouth. God, make this a reality. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.